Let's see, this morning we'll be reading from 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. Uh, God bless my southern tongue on some of these names. Y'all forgive me. <laughs> as for me, it has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of death is near. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas, and also bring my books and especially my papers. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and those living in the household of Anipsphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus sends you greetings, and so does Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. May the Lord be with your spirit, and may his grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. I praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Uh, my name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you could be here with us this morning as we finish our sermon series in 2 Timothy. We're actually concluding a long sermon series with 1 and 2 Timothy called For the Church. And as a final word of Apostle Paul, now we see the culmination of not only his encouragement to persevere, but we also get a glimpse of how he's able to finish his race that's marked out for him as he anticipates his imminent death in prison in Rome. So this is a final word of the beloved Apostle Paul giving to the church and to us this morning. We often uh, do premarriage counseling at Christ Central Church, and I also participate in premarriage counseling as well. And one of the questions I asked a couple uh, who's going through this process as an introductory question is, what is the picture of marriage you had when you were a child? And I also asked, what was a picture of a marriage when you became a teenager? And what kind of picture of a marriage do you have now? And as you could guess, I get all kinds of responses, but more often than not, many come to a similar conclusion. 
that you become very realistic about what marriage can be or what it looks like throughout the experiences of your life, realizing that either through your parents' relationships or what the world says about the marriage should be, what it looks like, uh, or even the heartbreaks of any romantic relationships that you may have endured through, the picture of marriage changes from child to teenagers and even later on in your life as well. And I think that is the same case, actually, if we were to ask about your picture of a church. What was a picture of a church like for you when you were a child? What did it look like when you became a teenager? What did it look like now as you are living in your life in different stages? And the question often reveals to us some of the experiences we had with the church, right? Whether it's through a church scandal or you've been or had a church hurt, or even what you hear about in the news today about what the church or these pastors or all these people are doing in the news, our view of the church changes through time. Sometimes we are hurt by the church. And quite frankly, some have given up on the institution of the church. That's why you often hear the phrase such as, I love Christ, I love Jesus Christ, but not the church. Right? Or I would say, I will follow Jesus all my life, but I will not go to church ever again. These phrases, once on the fringes, now became more of a norm for many people, especially in the post-pandemic era. And please know that your church hurt pain and trauma from what you experienced and saw are valid pains. Right? It is not the way God intended it to be. Yes, God will preserve his people, but the visible church, as we say, is often full of flaws. After all, it's made of, of God or people that are sinners. So I'm not here to defend the purity of church at all costs, to say, like, I don't care about your pain, just come. That's not what I'm saying. But as we come to the conclusion of the study in First and Second Timothy, titled, For the Church, the question that we have to ask and ponder is, what is Apostle Paul's hope for the church? What is Apostle Paul's hope for us as we gather this morning? What hope does he present for us in our journey with Jesus and his church? Is there really hope in church of Christ after all, with all that you and I have experienced? Well, if anyone thought that way, I think Apostle Paul would have thought that. Don't you think so? He has heard it all, right? He has seen it all. He has experienced it all. Talk about a wide range of emotions and the hurt they experienced, not only as a church planter, but as a missionary that was sent out, but also as a member of the church. In both good times and bad times, if anyone have right to say, well, I give up on this, right? Like, I try my best. Look at all these things I try to do. Well, I'm not feeling the church today. Well, that's Apostle Paul, isn't it? He could easily say that, and you and I will be like, that's right, you tried. Look at all, all the things that people have done to you, especially in today's verse. So when he says in verse 6, as for me, as for me, right? My life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. You may think, well, well, yeah, that's right. You've done it, right? You did it. Despite all the oppositions, you did it. 
It seems like that's what he's saying, doesn't it? But that's not how he ends, right? He says, and the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his reappearing. So he's not saying, well, I'm done, guys. I did my best. Now I'm ready for the YouTube church, right? I just get to get good teaching from now on. I don't need all that mess. Actually, that's not what he's saying. As we unpack his final words in chapter 4, in echoing God's call to persevere in loving God and loving others, we also see Apostle's own perseverance until the end where he declares this beautiful statement of faith and hope in the future stems out of the relationships in and through the church. So in his final words, what Apostle Paul does is actually invite us back into the fellowship with the church of Christ. And it begins with the fellowship with one another in the church. It begins with the fellowship with one another in the church. We often think, when you think about Apostle Paul, just imagine him walking in. Let's say I I tell you all, today's guest speaker is the Apostle Paul, and we're all cheering and thinking, wow, look at this guy. He must have this amazing influences and amazing relationships, right? After all, who would not want to benefit from this amazing pastor, shepherd, and leader? Surely there are people Waves of people following the disciples, the church plant. Talk about a church planting seminar. Can you imagine? You know, I know that uh, the, in the Billy Graham Center, they recently celebrated like the million people gathering in South Korea one time. But imagine, Apostle Paul shows up in your town. Lots of followers, all that, right? You'd think that he has amazing relationships. But, as we read today, he had a fair share of challenges. So many church hurts. He could relate to you all in many ways, and he names them in these verses. And we just read this morning, and I grouped them in these three broad categories that he went through. The first category is those who opposed Paul directly. We're introduced to Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14 and 15 when he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, Timothy, for he fought against everything we said. Well, the church history, we don't know really much about Alexander, the coppersmith, or what he has done. He may be the same man who was a spokesman of Jewish opposition in Ephesus after a riot in Acts 19. But he may also have been mentioned here since his involvement might have led to Paul's current arrest. So Paul faces many relational oppositions like this, especially to those whom extends love to and share the gospel with. Those were the ones that directly opposed Paul. The second category of relationship that he has were those who have forsaken Paul. In verse 10, we're introduced to Demas. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Demas, which may be short for Demetrius, shows up in Paul's earlier writings to Philemon. Paul honors Demas by referring to him as a fellow worker, along with the likes of Mark and Luke. Even in letter to Colossians, Demas is included in the greetings. The idea that Demas is in the inner circle of Paul's close-knit family or team of ministers is a good idea, uh, probably true. And here, but we see Demas, in love with the world, deserts Paul. 
The word desert here is the same word that is used to describe what Jesus cries out in the, on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he has forsaken Paul because of love for the world. Well, many debate whether demons left faith or just couldn't handle all the pressures. You could relate to that, can you? Perhaps like many who struggled to take up the cross to follow after Christ after initial profession, but the suggestion is that Demas is a close friend of Paul and his forsaking of Paul was very painful for him. Final category is those who blatantly just abandons Paul at difficult times. Verse 16, he says, The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me may not be counted against them. If you ever think about Paul following after Christ, this is it, isn't it? Paul acknowledges that during his preliminary hearing, all have abandoned him. None comes to his defense. Once again, highlighting the absence of fellowship at the dire time for Paul, which made his prison stay much, much lonely for him. Well, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? Right? Opposed, deserted, abandoned. We're like, that's right, Paul, let's go to YouTube church now, right? I don't need all that drama in my life anyways. Let me just hide away in my own circle and do what I do and just let's watch things and check off the boxes. But well, thankfully, it's not the only relationship that he had. He also names other relationships in this letter. And one category is those who are faithfully labor with Paul. Luke is mentioned in verse 11. It says, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with, uh, with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Luke is described as a fellow worker of Paul in Philemon and beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4. Luke was with Paul during some of the most difficult times, as it says. For example, in Acts 27, which Paul is being taken to Rome for the last time, we language is used to indicate that Luke was present with Paul at the time. We also know that Luke was a biographer for Paul who wrote down many of what Paul says, as well as you also know him as the author of the Gospel of Luke, right? And Book of Acts as well. We also know Timothy, the recipient of this letter, was the one who faithfully labored with Paul. Verse 9 says, Timothy, please come to me as soon as you can. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus so that you could come. We also see uh, him saying, come here before the winter time. You see Paul's desire, even in the jail cell, was to be with Timothy, shows depth of relationship with him, longing for his fellowship. So he sends someone else to say, look for the church for a while, but come and care for me. But not only those who faithfully labor with Paul is mentioned, but even those who reconcile in their relationship with Paul is mentioned. Verse 11, again, Mark. When Paul says, bring Mark with you when you come, Mark is an interesting case. If you follow Mark's story, Mark was the son of Mary of Jerusalem and cousin of Barnabas, right? He accompanies Paul and Barnabas in their first missionary journey. But for some reason, he left Paul in Pamphylia and went home. Paul considers this nothing less than a desertion that he experiences, right? So later when Barnabas again wanted to take Mark with him on the subsequent journey, Paul would not have none of it. Paul's like, I can't take this guy. He left me before. Let's not take this guy. So this disagreement was so intense, right? 
Paul and Barnabas decided to go on separate ways. Paul took Silas in one way, and Barnabas takes Mark and went the other way. We don't know exactly what happens afterwards, but we now see that during the most difficult time towards the end of his life, Paul is calling for Mark. Perhaps safe to say the relationship is reconciled here. Mark, once a deserter, is now a faithful worker that Paul longs to be with in these verses. We all now also know him as famously author of the Gospel of Mark, which he wrote under the guidance of Apostle Peter. We also see the names of people who supported and worked with um, Paul. In verse 19, it says, Give greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, those living in the house of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth. I left Tropimus, Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus sends you greetings. So do Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. You see, not only in his final greetings, he names Mark, Luke, Timothy's, but also names all these people, all the trails of relationships that happen on his difficult yet fruitful ministry of his life. Not necessarily all pastors or church planters or missionaries, by all means, fellow brothers and sisters in the church that Paul ministered with, ministered by, and ministered together with. Church, in these relationships that Paul pictures for us, I think Paul shows us what Christ's church can be and what church of Christ is. There are going to be heartbreaks, Paul is telling us, but there is also a chance for reconciliation. There is pain in getting involved in investing, but there is also suffering that's involved when you walk with different people. But there's also partnership that is born. There's family relationships that happens. Well, after all, this is the imperfect human beings trying to follow God after all. That is the picture of the church. Perhaps the most dysfunctional, the most inefficient, most imperfect method to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, right? Because some of us get really, really frustrated with the church and we're like, why is church so dysfunctional, so inefficient? Well, you look at it, right? Because people are there. The most dysfunctional, the most inefficient, the most imperfect method to preach the gospel perhaps is the church of Christ. We often love the spread of the gospel in first century church and we say we want to be like that, but we forget to read all the drama that comes with the church. So why does Paul show us all this? Right? It's hard enough to follow Christ after all. Why does he picture for us this type of relationships? Well, I think so you and I don't forget that this doesn't work on our own. Right? This kind of thing that we're trying to do doesn't really work on our own. Right? And despite our failures, God's church will not fail. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing testimony? I don't know why us Christians, we could pump up and say, look at us, when we realize there's nothing to look at. Only way we could testify to Christ is to say, well, despite this craziness that I'm part of, God still works here. I don't know why. Can I tell you why? No. So you come and listen and figure that out yourself because you're kind of crazy too, right? (laughs) 
I, I can't tell you that, but gospel tells me that. So come and see how God works this. God will use the church so that the gates of Hades cannot stand against it. God will stand against the tides of the culture and the challenges the world throws at us because God sustains the church of Christ. Even when churches struggle and walk away in the writings of Revelation and the dire warning to all these churches, you know what I hear again and again and again? What John says? To the church. To the church. Don't forget your identity. You are the church of Christ. Even now today, Christ Central and many, many that meet today to persevere, to strengthen is by God's grace and grace alone. Any church planter will tell you that when you start a church, you look for two things. First is affinity. What brings this group of people together, right? Sometimes it's social economics. Sometimes it's sports. Sometimes it's personalities in the church. And the second thing they look for is proximity. Like, how close are they? You know, we often grew up in that church, haven't you not? All of us grew up in a very close church that we all lived next to or something that you were used to all growing up. Well, I was talking to one of our new uh, visitors at Christ Central recently, and we talked about what makes Christ Central work, and we realized that we don't have neither, right? We don't have affinity. I have to explain to you my background story. You know, there's like seven of us here, Asian Americans, right? The, all your stories, not just black and white Asian Americans, Native Americans, whatever it may be, but all our stories differ, even if we come from a different parts of the world. Charlotte is one of the most transient cities ever, so our stories differ. There's nothing really brings us together today, right? Do you know why we do so many icebreakers? Because we've got to break the ice, right? Also, proximity, we don't have that. Do you know I often travel to Fort Mill, to Gastonia, to Concord, to Matthews, only to go back to church? I'm like, what am I doing, making a circle around the city? We don't live next to one another. Our kids don't go to the same schools. And often trying to be in a group with other people, we have to drive at least 20, 30 minutes to get there. So if you think about a church that has affinity, proximity, we don't have none of that. Right? But you know what we have? What brings us together and what this visitor testified by watching is that what we have is Christ who brings us together. And we have Christ that shares our stories and weaves it together. And as we get closer and closer and closer to the cross of Christ, we find proximity, realizing that our story is weaved together by Christ who brings by the grace of of God, So all of us can lean into one another, recognizing that we fall short of the glory of God. What better proximity than that in the church of Christ? Amen? After all, you know, Bible doesn't command us to say, be loved by your neighbor today. Have you read that before? Throw that out. That's not the Bible. The Bible says, love your neighbor. Active love. Bible doesn't say, wait and see, fold your arms backward and wait until they come to you. Throw that Bible out too. Rather, it speaks of giving all of yourself to one another out of humility. Consider others better than yourself. Bible also doesn't say, value one type of person over the other based on their race, gender, whatever. It doesn't say, discriminate based upon the giftings, right? 
Rather, the scripture says, you're all different, made in the image of God. All have different gifts. Together, you picture the gospel of Christ. And you know what ultimately the Bible tells us? Every single one of us that gather here, not join something that makes you feel good today. Join something when your schedule allows you to join or when your kids have grown up or when you are ready to plunge into things. Where the scripture says, follow Christ with the cross on your back. If Jesus loved his people as he died for them, he's calling you to do the same. That's the church. So I loved it when this visitor said, you know, one thing that really encourages me is when I come to church like this, at least I know people that I'm surrounded by are pretty serious about following after Christ. I think that's the testimony of Christ. That's the testimony of the church. May we never give up church, never give up in investing in relationships with one another. May we never, never seek our own comfort at the expense of following after Christ, may we learn to lean into one another at the Church of Christ, being drawn together by affinity and proximity that only Christ brings together. Amen? That's where we begin, seeing one another, drawing closer, but also that strength that Paul had in encouraging us not only comes from in fellowship with one another, but in his fellowship with Christ. At the foundation of the church, foundation of this perseverance is the fellowship with Christ. The source and the hope, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, even love that stems out of his heart in this season comes from his fellowship with Christ. And we get a small glimpse of that in his final testimony. First thing we see is in Paul's present worship. As if in the moment of doubt, Paul is reminded of Jesus' presence with them, right? So despite the loneliness of not being in, uh, not only being in prison, but with abandoned relationships at his side, Paul is so reminded, so reminded of Jesus' presence in the present moment, he just cannot help but to burst out in his praise and worship. And we've seen this time and time again. As he's teaching, he's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 this is for me too. Look at this praise and worship to the Lord. And that's what we see in verse 17 when he says, but the Lord, despite all the challenges, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirely for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. Yes, the Lord would deliver me from every evil attack and would bring me safely into heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Don't you want that type of testimony? That only comes, church, when you are able to uh, lose yourself in the present moment of worship to recognize that he is there. He is present. And that's what he does. But not only in those moments, he also sees his faith in the future. Not only of the present moment circumstances that he's surrounded by, but his future despite even perhaps the death that is to come. That's why in verse 6 he says, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Church, what Paul reminds us 
is as you draw closer to Christ, you will learn what it means to look forward to the future, to the heavenly kingdom. And a you know, natural, natural application that stems out of this, you know what it is? Surround yourself. Find people like this who not only looks at their present struggles or present pleasures of life, but who's willing to look forward to the ultimate hope that you're called to. How often Christ, Christians are so dragged on by the pleasures, the temptation of the world. The reason is we forget to look forward to the glorious hope that is to come. And Paul reminds us of that in the prison cells in Rome. And the final, final hope that we see in Paul's fellowship with Christ is in his final blessing. In his words of encouragement, it doesn't just bottle up it's just not like I'm going to finish well by myself and finish this crown of righteousness. Come visit me in this nice mansion. I'm going to live in heaven forever by myself. He doesn't say that, right? He says, well, I am ready for this, but this is a blessing for you also. It overflows onto others when he says, may the Lord be with your spirit. May his grace be with you all, right? He's saying here is a hope. Here is the hope that I give you. One pastor once told me, at church now, we often treat benediction like the airplane safety, right? They're like, okay, now time to go home. I got to go eat lunch. Okay, so exit this way. Exit this way. By the way, grace be with you all, right? But every letter Paul writes, you know, he always ends his letter with this benediction. We say good word as if to say whatever I wrote, right? Whatever I wrote, it's not going to happen unless the grace of God surrounds you with it. And here, may you depart with the Spirit. May grace be with you all. It's a blessing and a prayer of Christ's presence with Timothy and all the church. In it, we also see Paul's absolute, undivided, unshaking confidence. The fellowship that was strengthened Timothy and Paul and the church is Christ being with you. We often say for officers, the best gift you could give as an elder, woman, shepherd, whatever it may be, to the church is your personal holiness, meaning your personal walk with Christ. And here, the best gift as a follower of Christ can give to one another, to yourself, is also the same. To be with the Lord, to see Him, to worship in your present moments, to look forward to His deliverance, but also to share the glory, the grace, of God with those that God has called you to walk with. That is, church, what it means to be part of the church of Christ. William Wilberforce um, is known in the history of English politician as the one who put an end to slave trade in England in 1807. However, the path to this accomplishment was no easy task, as he says. In fact, in early July 1796, this great leader as we say, often almost quit. The bill he put forward in the March of 1796 lost in the final voting process after a few key supporters were swayed, abandoned him in the last minute. Disappointed, discouraged by everything, he considers giving up and retiring from the public office. And as a result, he writes to his mentor, John Newton, former slave trader, an author of him, Amazing Grace, a testimony of how God came, overcame his sin in his life. 
telling him of his intentions that he has worked tirelessly for nine years without any fruit. On July 21, 1796, Newton replies to Wilberforce. It was a powerful and persuasive letter. In it, Newton wrote that he believed um, Wilberforce had been called by God to serve in the House of Commons as a witness to those who did not know him. Newton wrote the example, and even the presence of a consistent character may have a powerful, though unobserved, effect upon others. And he also says, you are not only a representative for Yorkshire, you have the far greater honor of being a representative for the Lord in a place where many know him not, and an opportunity of showing them what are genuine fruits of that religion which you are known to profess. Another word to say, be a Christian that shines in a darkness. And in this letter, reminding Wilberforce of the great honor as well as God's work, even in the midst of the work that he may not realize, encouraged him to persevere and finish the task until the um, abolishment, abolishment of the practice of human trade in 1807, abolishing the slave trade then. Church, 2 Timothy is a mentor, Paul's letter to his beloved Timothy to persevere, for the church to persevere. So when he says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the praise, prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but all of you who all eagerly look forward to his appearing, may the Lord be with your spirit and may his grace be with you all. Is God's encouragement for the church, for you and I. You and I have this great honor to be saved by the grace of God, but also to represent it, to starting here and beyond, to persevere and to testify, testify of the goodness of Christ. Will you join with us? Especially for those who have not known him or who have been running away from the Lord. Do you not see God chasing after you? Will you join our loving God's gesture and come to him for the glory of his kingdom? Let's pray. Let's pray, church. Father, we are grateful for your grace upon our lives. We thank you that despite the challenges, the struggles, the failures of your people, that you never give up. The Lord, that despite the difficult relationships that we had in the church, around church, and outside of church, in the church, Father, you still, you still want to carry out your plan of redemption through your people, ultimately for the glory of God. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.